4: Team Human is ad-free and supported entirely by teammates like Joshua Voiles, Christina Looku, Corey Hunt, Noah Chase, and hopefully you. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to get access to our Discord, free links to my paywalled medium pieces, access to the Rushkoff archives, and lots of other team-only perks, including our monthly live Team Human salons like this one. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. An opportunity to model the best of human behavior, both for one another and any children who happen to be listening, whether biological or artificial. The way we are is the surest indication of the way they will be. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and that's why I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today... It's Team Human, that's right, another episode recorded in the Kibitz Room, deep underground in the Team Human Apocalypse Bunker in Flushing, New York. It's time to intervene on behalf of all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Before we get to the discussion today, I thought I'd share with you kind of where I'm at these days on this whole AI controversy. Everybody all over the place, they seem to be so afraid of AIs. Even the folks making and investing in them have signed on to this rather chilling document proposing a six-month moratorium on training AIs in the hope that we can figure out some regulations or guiding principles to prevent worst-case existential risks to humanity and i think they're looking at this this problem the wrong way it's not just that they're obsessed with existential risk right that is a problem more thoughtful critics of ai have correctly pointed out that the technology titans responsible for the moratorium demand, they're fixated only on the existential issues that might one day impact even billionaires in bunkers on Mars or living in the metaverse, rather than addressing the real harms being done by AIs and algorithms right now. The algorithms used to determine everything from mortgage suitability to prison sentences are racist, sexist, and prone to thinking like eugenicists. Even there, though, the problem isn't the AIs themselves, but the data on which they are trained. AIs are just language models. They have no idea what they're doing or saying. They are quite simply, quite literally, modeling themselves after the language to which they are exposed. So the obvious answer would be to regulate and filter the language on which the AIs are trained. If we only feed them language about protecting life, not letting markets overtake the environment, finding peaceful instead of nuclear solutions to conflict and so on, then they'll end up behaving in great ways. If we don't feed them our current advertisements and marketing, then they won't further refine and deploy all that manipulation and mind control. But that's a bit like saying we're going to change the way children grow up by restricting the curriculum we teach them at school without considering the way the teachers and administrators actually behave, as if the kids aren't exposed to all those other behaviors. It doesn't matter that you teach your kids to be nice to their peers if you're not being nice to yours. That's because kids model our behaviors. They're in the backseat of the car watching and learning when you curse at the driver who cut you off. AIs are the same way. They don't just see the stuff we think we're feeding them in our curated data sets. They see everything. They see the innate aggression, the underlying logic of capitalism, the fear of death, the need to manipulate or obfuscate, the greed, the cheating, the lying, and whatever else is embedded in our sentences. AIs are like children and will model who we really are more than who we say we are. So if the sample set from which they are monitoring human behavior is, well, the sum total of human behavior, then our AIs are going to amplify and accelerate the way we are going about things right now. And that, more than anything, is what has the wealthy tech bros scared. See, They've been banking on their ability to outrun the collateral damage of their own activities. That's what my book, Survival of the Richest, was actually about. These guys think they can earn enough money and build enough technology to escape the damage they've been causing by earning money and building technology in the ways they have. They've essentially been trying to build a car that can go fast enough to escape from its own exhaust or or trying to go meta on the real world so they can escape to someplace else altogether. Well, with AIs accelerating the pace of change and destruction, their calculus changes. Destruction and exit strategy was already built into the business plan, but now there are AIs ready to learn and execute the plan on a vastly accelerated schedule. So now instead of tech pros going meta and rising above the masses, it's AIs going meta and rising above them. Instead of them colonizing the masses, it's the AIs colonizing them. That's why they're calling for a pause in order to regroup. And that's not going to work. Like the parents in the Doors classic song, The End, they're afraid to go to sleep, lest they be bludgeoned by their own children. The only way out is to teach the children well. And this means more than selecting a different or better language model, we are the language model. The only alternative is to start acting and speaking the ways we want our AIs to act and speak. If we continue to act like evil shits, our AIs will act like evil shits too. We have given birth to a technology that will not only imitate us, but amplify and accelerate whatever we do. It's time to grow up. The children are watching. you're on team human this is a special episode one of our team human kibitz room conversations recorded deep in the team human apocalypse bunker uh, which you can actually get to by joining Team Human, click on support, and you'll get access to our Discord channel where the conversation's occurring in text year-round, but hopefully at least once a month live in uh, semi-person uh, in our audio channel. So here's one we recorded on Friday, April 28th. I hope you like it. Welcome to the Team Human. We're in the kibbutz room. There was some some confusion about what the kibbutz room, what that means. What is kibbutz? It's not dog food. Neither is it a a uh, Israeli commune. Um, kibbutz is like the Yiddish word for, um some ways it's like gossip, it's sit around. I mean, it, there, some people say it's, it's to kvetch, like a, kvetch, that's another. That's really going to help if you don't know Yiddish already. Kvetching is like complaining about things. Oh, he's kvetching about this, kvetching about that. But kibitz means it's kind of light kvetching. It's just where we sit and talk about stuff. And there was actually in Los Angeles, there's a um, a deli. The deli is still there, called Cantor's Deli. It's the Jewish deli, the original Jewish deli on Fairfax, for all the Jews, I guess, who were going out to L.A. to uh, to start. And they um, had a an, a little annex, like a restaurant next to the deli, where you could actually get drinks, and that was called the Kippet's Room. Um, so and I always loved that the kibitz room because I knew what it was. You're gonna go in there and you're gonna kibitz. It's like what the old ladies do when they're playing mahjong at the beach club. They're kibitzing. So I thought kibitz would be a nice a nice way to talk about what we're doing here, which is just the the back room for Team Humanites, if that's what we are, or Earthlings to get together and have a nice informal, not a bitch session, because we're so friendly, but uh, a little... Uh, it's almost like the officer's mess, where we go and, and have a little solidarity, a little conversation. And I also like the idea of, of contrasting Kibbutz Room, which is like this nice little place where we pay Mahjong and talk, with uh, calling it the Apocalypse Bunker. Like, here we are deep, you know, 40, 40 stories beneath the ground in a former missile silo, uh, former missile silo that now serves as the Team Human Apocalypse Bunker. Kind of is a, a way of playing with the survival of the richest ideas. But uh, Kibbutz Room stayed. The apocalypse bunker kind of has has faded as the, the first chapter of that book has given way to a, a more uh, positive, dare I say, positive pro-social message of, of, of what we want to do rather than just critiquing what those few tech bros wanted to do. But So here we are. It's the Kibbutz Room, which is just a place to talk about whatever we want to talk about. And I wanted to if anything, use that definition of kibitz to open permission. So it doesn't have to be like call radio where, or it may be more like call radio. So it's not like, oh, ask Rushkoff Sage your question, come up. And you know, it's not like that, but it's rather you can just, just share whatever's going on and we can just talk. So you don't have to have a question. You can think of it like a Quaker meeting. You can just share whatever's on your mind and maybe I'll, you know, share with you or comment on it as, as a host or comment with you. But yeah, you can ask a question of what I think about something or you can just share whatever is going on or whatever you want to share with, uh, with us and the millions of listeners to Team Human. All right. With that said, hey, everybody, uh, it's, I've had a rough, a rough few weeks. My daughter was sick. She got salmonella poisoning. But it's like not just, it's never just that. You know, it's that. Then you take antibiotics and you're sick from the antibiotics and then your gut biome gets all screwed up. So it's just been a really rough, a rough few weeks. Hopefully, um, hopefully she's on the mend now. But boy, it can get intense, especially these, these ERs are like friggin'. You know, Beirut 1974. It's like it's, it's not it like ERs were when I was a kid. It's pretty intense. Lots of gurneys in an almost parking lot like reconfiguration, you know. There's like three or four gurneys for every what formerly single gurney area. So it is really boy. Wow. Post-COVID healthcare in America is not a pretty thing. Avoid it if you can. So, hey everybody. I'm <laughs> happier note. Um, Does anybody, do you want to share or anything going on? Uh, Hey, Brenda.
6: Hi. So I'm relatively new to all of this. I'm a songwriter and I've been kind of trying to think about AI assisted writing as far as the emotional impact that it has on people on a macro scale, because I've been thinking about my writing process and the way that it goes is a lot of times I will fail to write a song. And then that kind of pushes me to process things further and then write a song that's much better than what I would have written. Mm. And um, like, for example, I, a couple years back, was writing because I was annoyed at my friends for posting vacation pictures on Instagram when we were in a pandemic. And I had just been on a vacation, but I just dissociated the whole time and didn't feel good about it. And I was trying to capture that emotion when I was writing. But I found that... I was just getting frustrated, so I gave up. And then a couple of days later, I realized that I wasn't really frustrated with my friends. I was actually just lonely and sad and hadn't hugged anybody in a week and was worried and terrified that that was going to be forever. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up writing a much better song than I would have written if I'd finished the original song. And my worry is that if we have AI assisted writing, then I might've just finished that frustration song, put that energy out into the world instead of the core emotion of what I was feeling. And it would completely change on a macro scale, the landscape of the sort of art that's being put out there.
4: Yeah, no, it does make sense. I'm interested to know, how would you use the AI like in the, in the lyrics or in the, in the melody?
6: Yeah. In lyrics or, I mean, melody usually comes to me pretty early, so I would have had that down. But if I'd used lyrics to kind of finish out that thought of being annoyed, then I just wouldn't have gotten to anything else. And I would have lost the introspection of a Mm. couple days.
4: What you're describing kind of applies to all technology. It's like whatever you're going to do, it's like, look, this thing's going to take a lot of time. Like, We want to till the soil. Oh, man. All right. We got a little bit done today. It's going to be like a whole month until we're able to till this whole field the way we do it. Why don't we just buy a friggin' tractor and we can get this done in one after? Let's just do it, right? So you're going to go and use the tech to do the thing faster and then you find out, Oh, there's all these externalities and negative consequences to having just done that. Oh, we've just destroyed the soil matrix and we've done this and we've (laughs) eroded the topsoil, and we're only going to get this many years out of this field rather than an infinity because we're, you know, defeating something. Or like if I want to get a book proposal done, like in the past, I guess I can admit this in the past, um, In order to get something done, when I was really, really stuck, I had a bottle of six pills, six pills of like Ritalin. And on three of my book proposals in the late 90s and early 2000s, I took one of them out and did the Ritalin and was kind of high on Ritalin for four hours to kind of push through that opening of the proposal. And I forced it. Right, I forced it. So the AI, in some ways, like a pill, like a tractor, like a, any other any other piece of technology, is going to amplify something at the expense of something else. So yeah, I mean, so why force it? Well, we're going to force it because you know we want to increase our utility value over time, right? We want to. <laughs> I mean. I only got so long to write. I got to get something out, especially if we're going to make money off it. You've got to produce. And that becomes the excuse for taking, I hear you, for taking certain kinds of shortcuts. I mean, I'm not saying not to use AI. I think using AI in specific and intentional ways, not in order to finish faster. But I mean, if I was going to consult AI for uh, songwriting, especially for lyrics, it would be to find out, what is the most cliche possibility here, right? Because that's what AIs are, are yearning for, is the most probable, the most possible thing, almost to see what not to do, or to see if I can come up with a new combination. Or AIs are also, they're all about memory, right? Everything in the AI is using the past and pulling it to, towards the present. So it's like, you kind of can get a glimpse of the entire history of that emotion as it's come forward because it's memorized. It, it knows everything in Wikipedia or on Wikipedia or on the net. So there's definitely fun ways to consult AI like an oracle of the past in order to think about that as you move something into the future or into the present. But yeah, I hear you and I'm so there. It's like, I used to see all these articles about writer's block and people used to ask me, what do you do when you have writer's block? And no, I wouldn't tell them I have, I still have three Ritalin left. I still have them. They're like a prescription from 1987. I still have them somewhere, but it's not like, oh, I'm going to take Ritalin if I get writer's block. What I would tell people is there's no such thing as writer's block. There's just the wrong time to write. You know, (laughs) I'm still (laughs) right. I'm still writing. I'm just gestating or germinating. It's like saying, why isn't that plant growing? It's growing. It's just under the ground. It hasn't popped up. It's germinating. It's waiting. It's thinking. So I've tried to be way less judgmental about like what's my word count? Or how many songs have I written? How many things have I done? And much more accepting of, oh no, I'm processing, I'm doing. So I hear you. There's a great lesson. I mean, your example, I'm gonna be able to use, you know, because you might, right. You might've just finished the frustration song rather than getting to that better song. And boy, mm-hmm. I so hear that, you know, it's just such a hard lesson, especially when you've got a zillion, I mean, I got too many things. I'm doing too many things at once. I'm trying to please too many people, get too much work done. And that makes for bad work. I mean, you're not bad work, but it makes for incomplete, incomplete work. I mean, you're, you're so right. But yeah, I don't think it means that we've got to stop using it. I think it means, or stop using even tractors necessarily. It just means we've got to be aware that if we're going to employ an accelerant, we better have a, a damn good reason for needing that, right? And if you're not in the operating room, it's like, wait a minute, is this that critical that we want to take that shortcut? Hmm. Lucky KW. Oh, Lucy KW. Hey, Lucy.
5: Hi, hello. I've been out of touch for a while, so it's really good to be back with um, Team Human People. Yeah, I remember
4: you from the uh, the 3D rooms that we had. You were running around in there.
5: <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, that really resonated with me, and it's been fascinating watching both Mid Journey and you know, Stable Diffusion um, on the imaging side. And ChatGPT just mature so fast, not just in terms of the AI technology, but in terms of the culture around it and people's expectations. And it was so interesting, both as a visual artist and a technologist, to see the first images were like, hey, look, I can do something in the style of something else. And it's Mm. a woman with large breasts. (laughs) (laughs) And, And what they were trying to do was just sort of emulate that shiny object. So... This idea that you're skipping over and you might go to to something that's too obvious too quickly. Mm. I saw that playing out, but I also saw the pushback and I've been using it to kind of the thinking space, really, all, all, all the paintings that I haven't had a chance to actually make. In, in real life, I've been kind of like using mid journey to kind of churn through the ideas and, and get them down on, on pixels. And I think for me, the real power in using these technologies is, as you were saying, to use them consciously and to bring them into our creative or, or, or workflow, creative processes and workflows. But for me, the word I'm really working with is augmentative. Mm. So, a lot of what I'm asking either ChatGPT or Stable Diffusion to do is just do what I would do normally, not just faster, but more efficiently and effectively. And because I can do those things for myself, I am able to better evaluate and train the AI, basically, especially with ChatGPT. I can say, no, that was wrong. That's not what I intended. And just watching the AI learn from my feedback through through the language interface has been incredible. So one of the things I'm working towards is using chat to support people with cognitive impairments um, to be able to participate better in health appointments and to be able to have the kind of support that normally is, is, is offered by a human. And at the moment, I don't know if it's the same in the U.S., but here in the UK, that kind of support is really hard to come by if it exists at all for people. And so, you know, especially during during the pandemic, there were people who just couldn't explain what their health issues were. And, and there was nobody there to help them do it. If we can build new interfaces that support people and that pull people out of some of the holes that society and our cultures put them into, or and pull or pull them out of disassociation or despair. I think that is the most gorgeous mission for AI. The
4: thing is, you're talking about the difference between, first really, the difference between the way an artist would use a tool like AI and the way an industry would use a tool like AI. So the industry is using AI and the arts to replace us, right? <laughs> to get crap, right? To get t-shirt art. You know, and we're using it to experiment, to have a strange digital partner in this. You know, it's uh (laughs) a... It's very different. It's the same as you know. uh, Real artists will go into you know old fashion magazines and clip pictures and play around. I mean, it's part of it. It's but you're bringing consciousness to it. You know, it's the opposite of moving toward the cliche. It's kind of pushing through cliche. You know, and and you're right. You know, when you use the word augmentative, you know, it goes back to Douglas Engelbart in that first essay he wrote Godwin ever that was in the 60s. You know, augmenting human intellect, a conceptual framework. That was the whole point of, of computers and these interfaces was uh, how do we augment humans rather than replacing them? Then, and you're right, it does take you right to access for the disabled. And, you know, what we found when we were doing, I used to be at at Interactive Telecommunications Program at NYU, doing some of the early work on on, uh, kind of digital access and how do you make interfaces more accessible for everybody, that when you make something more accessible for so-called disabled people the interfaces become better for non-disabled people, right? <laughs> you see? And I can't imagine, in terms of communicating with your doctor, I mean, I'm not disabled, but I've done those Skype calls and those Zoom meetings with my me and my wife or me and my daughter, and it's like, ah, you know, why can't we communicate here? And any of the tools that you're developing are going to make it easier. You know, even if they look silly at first, we're finally going to be able to have that, uh, the communication that we're still lacking. So it's like look at all the cognitive and emotional states we've been leaving out right so we we do not build calm technologies we build utilitarian technologies so when the doctor and the patient are speaking or the or anybody and anybody are speaking we're not in our our <sighs> I get to use the word like best, but we're not in our calm, best emotional state. We're in, at best, we're in a dopamine state. You know, it's so hard to get any sort of oxytocin, any sort of calmness, any, how can you, you know, we're, we're not even operating at cognitive efficiency when we're using these things because they're rough and interruptive and alienating. And how do you, how do you perform? You know, we perform in a very specific way, I guess, I guess is, is the answer. But yeah, let's let's hear what other people have to say about that and whatever they're bringing to that to this table. So, thank you, Lucy. Hey, Viv, how are you doing?
2: Hello. So, I I guess I wanted to talk about like kind of a. It's it's not like I really have that much to say about it, but I but it's just a a, a theme that pops up a lot in my life, and I'm really working through it, which is a uh, fear. Like overcoming fears. And I, I, I'd I be interested in hearing what, what y'all think about like fear and overcoming fear, because it's been a really interesting topic for me.
4: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, fear is good for us, right? I mean, we got it for a reason. You know, if it wasn't for fear, we wouldn't have known to like run away from the saber toothed tiger and maybe wouldn't have the, you know, the adrenaline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To get away, you know, a little bit of fear, certainly in a dangerous world, kept us safe. It's just, you know, the, the the interesting thing. It goes back to technology. Is human beings got really good at addressing their fears, right? With you know, houses and guns and up barriers, and you know, we've we've in some ways the world that we've built around ourselves is. It, a response to fear trying to eliminate all possible fears and we've ended up of course creating other ones you you <laughs> there's a there's a balance and then there's you know I look at you know indigenous people and they're like sleeping outside and stuff and I'm thinking oh well that's so cool and all that but you know snakes and stuff are coming right so how do they fall asleep knowing they might wake up with like a snake <laughs> <laughs> but it's a balance you know first i guess they're good at knowing how to where you sleep to not be to not get snaked but um it's a different threshold right so i i hear you I, and i do think that that certainly creatively I mean, for me, so much of it has been about learning to, you know, not just tolerate, but enjoy that fear, that unknown, untethered place, you know, writing a book, especially if you're writing a new book about some new idea rather than just copying someone else's. It's scary, right? Because you're going out in the unknown. I mean, first, you don't know whether it's even going to work or not. But in order to come up with something new, you've got to travel through uncharted, territory, you know, whether it's, you know, visionary territory or physical territory or emotional territory, you've got to, you kind of have to go to a new place. And um, I mean, so I always thought of my writing as always, it's all travel writing, right? I'm writing about my travels, whether they're head travels or heart travels or physical travels, but these are new spaces. You're always embedding with some crazy folks or ideas. So how do you build up the tolerance for that unknown, that, that liminal space between things, you know, the place where mommy and daddy told you not to go is, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's that place, <laughs> you know, and to not, you know, it was weird. I, I think of gender partly because, because it's you Viv, but I just mm-hmm. had to fill out this form and it was like, which gender, you know, and I just started to resent it. I was just like, wait a minute, why, why am I thinking that way? You know what? And it was like, there's a the gender thing. And then there was the sexuality thing mm-hmm. on this. And I'm like, what business of, is this of anybody's? And why do I even have to make a choice? You know, <laughs>
2: Yeah, there's <laughs> this giant <laughs> lake between like these two islands, one pink Island, one blue Island. And it's such an uncharted territory. And it's like, I feel like we're just waking up and just kind of feel like, okay, like as as society wise, we can just kind of like understand what does it mean to be non-binary? What does it mean to, you know, cross that, cross that ocean? But why am I even obligated to be non-binary?
4: I can't, I just, just, I'm not thinking about that. I'm walking through the, this is not my definition space right? Mm. I could more easily call myself Jew than whatever this society calls male, right? Or straight, yeah. or Buy or it's like what what the fuck you know i'm gonna have (laughs) sex with somebody and we'll see we'll see who it is (laughs) at the end when i die you can keep score and tell me what this person was do you know what i mean there's just but with each of those things and i understand people feel safe if they know are you a jew are you white are you male are you cis are you trans are you that it's like fuck it man you know but to just walk yeah. around if we just walk around i hate to say it like that but you know what i mean just
2: walk around it's like we're more than just <laughs> what we write on our tinder uh, not Tinder <laughs> twitter bio yeah that too yeah, <laughs> Freudian slip right there. yeah it's
4: beautiful yeah <laughs> Right, but so you know, each one of those things, just to stay in space, is that's the scary thing for so many people, you know. And that's a different thing. That's misplaced, right? So there's the normal fears: fear saber tooth tiger, fear of rattlesnake, and the things that we do to calm those fears. And then there's this other: the way we address the unknown, and we use the same tactics that we use to to address fear, and they're two different things, you know. You should we should be able to embrace the unknown live without the training wheels without the even the words you know in the west our words our nouns we get nouns for things oh that's what this is that's what this is that's what that is once you have the noun it's in its box it's done it's over there it's a thing and it's like sorry buddy you know that thing is a tree and it's thinking and it's watching and (laughs) it's
2: loving and it's you can't (laughs) There's so much aggression involved in that and putting yeah. things where they gotta be, right? In order to create this illusion of comfort and mm-hmm. you know and, and safety to go back yeah. to the thing of fear. I feel like I you know, I yeah, as they say so well and do and feel is fear is the mind killer. So yeah. yeah. And it is
4: interesting because the the Digital technologies that we have are really good for labeling things and sorting things and putting everything in its little place. And in some ways, doing that so much engenders the fear response right if you're because if labeling all these things and you know deanimating things like you know the way Francis bacon or a scientist would deanimate things in order to be able to quantify them and label them and say what they are this is biology this is a butterfly you know kill it and stick it with a pin on the wall there's the butterfly it's not a butterfly it's a corpse, right? But but I get it. But we're living in a world where that's being done so much, whether things are being productized or labeled or gendered or specified or tabulated or uh, modeled by an AI, that we're living in a world where that circuit has been so amplified the label the thing and stick it over there and put it in a category no wonder we're afraid so much of the time right because we're living in a world as if we needed to do that when we actually you know when we actually didn't the sorting function is is a digital bias not necessarily um a human one except under under that kind of duress hey uh
1: my <laughs> friends. uh hearing everyone talking about AI, that's where my my threads were thinking initially. So I, I followed Duncan Trussell for a while and I would love to hear you all talk again, especially since he's sort of like, had a moment of turning around on it where he was very uh, just uh, optimistic and utopian about it for a while. And then recently he had an intro where he's sort of coming down to earth a little bit and talking about the struggle of an artist and how sort of what Brenna was talking about, about like the the frustration and the time that it takes to perfect a skill you know to you could spend 10 years uh, to get good at art or music or comedy or whatever it is and and part of that struggle is something that's uniquely human mm. versus the ai sort of like gathering you know the the top of the bell curve from any subject but that's also what's fascinating about it that like it can five tops of bell curves and do five things average together that becomes sort of more than the sum of its parts, uh, or at least becomes better than you could as as a human who only can reach uh, maybe the the top of the bell curve in a handful of things. It's funny.
4: I spent the weekend with Duncan when I um, went to South by in uh, March, and it was at the peak of his ai vocalization thing he had you know one computer set up with all these little voice things he was Uh copying different kinds of people and playing with that and he like he hadn't written a song with his keyboards in the longest time so we i kind of seduced him back into i got him to turn on one of the synthesizers for me and then i started to play like i'm kind of John Carpenter style 1970s horror (laughs) soundtrack stuff. And, Uh and and he starts going, Ooh, Ooh, that's, and then I got him right back in. And then he went to his patchboard and started making all these weird sounds over it. We did like this two hour jam of, you know, it it sounded like, you know, phantasm meets, you know, God knows what, it was this great, great thing. We, we went, but the funny thing that happened was, um, we went to uh, Whole Foods to get, you know, barbecue stuff, to do a barbecue for his kids and some guests that were coming over. And we're walking sort of into the, uh, into the Whole Foods and we hear this like bird sound, like Wah! bird, Wah! bird, this crazy bird sound. And he's like, yeah, listen to that. They got these really weird birds here in Austin. It's like they've been freaking me out. I- I'm finally used to it. But isn't that the weirdest bird? And I'm like, Duncan. That's not a bird. That See that over the door? That's this little speaker. They're making that sound. And he's like, what? I said, yeah, it's like this sound they're making. They're probably trying to keep pigeons. And then I looked and I saw all these little spikes. I said, look at those spikes. See, that sound is to keep pigeons from being here. And he looks at me and he goes, this is what you do, isn't it? And I was like, huh? He goes, that's your job. You're a media theorist. You expose you know what's real from what's. this is what you do and i realized yes in with and that's this kind of spiritual beauty of being with certain people at certain times like you you if you spend time with duncan trussell you will manifest you will have an opportunity it's a magical opportunity (laughs) to manifest your pure state and it was uh it was so wild but you know we we we, I think we did that for each other in some ways in that moment, sure. but but um, but boy, huh. it was a it was just a funny one. It's a it's a but great great excuse to tell that story. That's
1: so <laughs> lovely and just like good timing. That, that, I mean that this this realization for him. It was, sounds like it was just a few weeks ago. So I think that yours was that experience with you was probably just one element of the stream or like the stream starting to carve itself out and diverging in a different direction. Yeah.
4: Uh, I like to think anyway, you know, that we, that we, well, that we all influence each other and, and see it. It was an interesting journey he was on, but yeah, I think it's only so, it's only so interesting, I think. And cause he's got, right. he's such a human creator, you know, that I was thinking, Oh man, you don't need to go in there, you know, write crazy songs. And that, you know, but it's just another tool. And now it's it's gonna become part of his thing. Is he's got synthesizer, it's all analog synth weird loops and things. Just I'm I'm interested mm-hmm. to see if anybody should be playing with uh with AI. It's Duncan Chussel, right? He's sat for long enough, you know. God bless. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. I wanna I wanna bring up I, I see before before we get to the end of our hour, Jim uh Carver, you're you're in the house with a hand up. So why don't you? you'd know more about how to get up onto a Discord stage than I do. So please welcome.
3: It's good to see you guys. I mean, I see so many familiar names here. And uh, it's been a long time since I've been involved, but I've been with you guys in spirit. Mm. A couple of kibitzing that came up along the way. Uh, What is his name, John? I can't think, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know where it comes from, but they're saying we make decisions for one or two reasons either out of fear or out of love and i found that you always have that choice okay it doesn't mean that you need to be unsafe it doesn't mean that you don't need to be protected but you can still Make a better choice if you choose out of love.
4: Well, I can agree with the first one. I mean, if you have time, especially, right? So there's like, you know, even if there are saber-toothed tigers running at you, you know, you could make the initial fear choices, you know, shoot it or throw the spear at it. And maybe there's, if you have time, there's the love choice where you just get up a tree or something and don't have to to kill the thing. (laughs) You think about, you know, with anything it's it's you know the the fear one usually is the faster it's the faster one the instinctual one because where when you don't feel safe but boy, you get both feet on the ground and that's i think i think is a great objective in life is how can you move through the world feeling safe enough to operate from love rather than fear you know it it's hard you've got to really you know, and and to recognize, oh, I'm in a situation where I don't feel safe right now at this moment. Chances are, if something happened, I'm not going to act out of love. I'm going to act out of fear. So, what can I do right now? Can I just take a breath? Can I? You look into someone's eyes. What kinds of things can I do to engender the the mindset or the heartset to behave in a in a loving fashion rather than a fearful one? I mean, it's a good, really good check. You know,
3: and you know people say you know I'm a I'm an animal person you know the dog whisperer and the horse whisperer but I think it's the same thing I think if you approach them with love you're not going to have a problem whereas if you approach them with fear it's dangerous
4: yeah well you know what I'm also thinking of is uh if if I could be like a self whisperer you know <laughs> If I could approach myself with love rather than with fear or condemnation or or dismissal, you know, be a self whisperer, then you know, I'm gonna get a lot better performance out of myself, a lot better life, right? But boy, I don't. My inner voice is just so friggin' fearful, it's nuts. As long as we have you on, because you are a, a crypto observer, <laughs> I'm wondering now, in the post-Silicon Valley Bank, post-Sam Bankman Freed, post-effective altruism, doge insanity, do you see now the possibilities of of kind of more human-centered DAOs uh, emerging? <laughs>
3: Yeah. Absolutely, I'm, you know I'm certainly uh, working on a project for exactly that purpose—to build cooperation and collaboration at st- scale. And you know we need a trustless network in order to be, for everybody to trust it. Hmm. But we need, without building trust on those networks, they're evil. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, I mean, they're, you know, I mean, they i mean—they have so many downfalls, but. Decentralized organization at scale, starting with the person, the individual, mm. and then peer to peer connections and the groups and autonomous governance at the group level. Uh, there's a lot to it. It's not simple, but it, I do have a working prototype of a good piece of it with liquid democracy and trust metrics. So I think there's hope. <laughs> And I think there's hope for the artificial intelligence as well, uh, primarily as a, as a teaching tool. Right. Not that it replaces teachers, it doesn't, but uh, it can be an extremely effective teaching tool.
4: Yeah, I feel like these technologies need to be, you know, like the original internet was kind of discarded by the military. You know, they thought it was going to be for all these sort of nuclear scientists to share their military secrets and keep us going in the event of a nuclear war. But they kept sharing like their favorite Star Trek episodes and recipes for stuff. So the government and DOD was just like, oh screw this thing (laughs) let's get rid of this they tried to give it to at&t and they didn't want it so i'm almost hoping that happens with crypto that they go all right look we're not just going to make a zillion dollars on this thing we don't care about it anymore and then the people can go oh what's this for what can we do with this that that actually helps us
3: do you remember the french effect no no I i thought you were around then maybe you weren't it was the, the French government figured out that it was cheaper to give everybody a terminal than to print the phone books. <laughs> and the network got overloaded with sex chat. <laughs> and... It was uh, called uh, uh, the French effect. When you bring up a network like that, it's going to be used for things that you don't anticipate.
4: Well, it's the v- story of VHS, the story of so many, so many great <laughs> technologies. Yeah, we're we're addressing the various sexual differentials in our in our society. Oh, I know it somehow it comes back to
3: that. I think AI will most help the independent learner, but. I think it's uh, a tool that probably uh, most kids can benefit from using.
4: Yeah, exactly. From using and playing with, you know, and, and it's just, boy, with any of these, I mean, I, I hear yeah. you. It's with any of these, it's about seeing them as you know, how can we partner with them? What can we learn from them? But it, it requires us to then look at society a little bit differently. If you're putting kids in school and making them write papers they don't want to write and take tests about things they don't care about and constantly judging their performance and making school about assessment, then they're going to use the AIs to do better on their assessments. If instead you have a school that is about exploration and interrogation and helping kids learn about things they want to learn then they're going to think, oh, look at AI. I can use this to do that better. And boy, wouldn't that be a whole different thing? So I've never blamed AI for any of this. I always blame the context um, that we're in because we're going to use the tools, you know, there's some societies where you're going to use gunpowder for fireworks, and somewhere you're going to use it for subjugating other people. You know which which society you want to be in.
3: And if if, if we ever expect cooperativism to challenge capitalism, we have to have our AIs cooperate. Yeah. So that we have equal power, so to speak, or. As a mass.
4: Yeah. No, I hear you. And the biggest challenge I always have when I'm speaking to cooperatives is getting them to follow that last rule of cooperatives, which is cooperatives cooperate with each other. <laughs> you know, they're always competing. Oh, our co op is better than their co That's not how it works, my friend. It's not how it works. Let me just, if it's okay, I've never done this. I want to call, invite um, John Lipkowski up because I see him there. He's been a mentor of mine for 30 years, I hate to admit. But it'd be great, John. You wanna you wanna uh, uh, take us out? Oh, cool. You know when we were at P.J. Chang's or whatever that place was called, P.F. Chang's, yeah. P.F. Chang's in Austin, and I turned to you and I was like, "What do you think of AI?" And you said, "Like, um, what did you say?" You said, "What do you mean? You mean? Do you remember what you said?" She's like, "You mean? What
7: do I think of uh, simulated intelligence? Probably." Or, yeah, or I might language. That.
4: Yeah, or it's like you would ba- basically suggested that it's just a, a language process search engine, you know? <laughs> well,
7: yeah. Yeah. I mean, AI at this point, and I don't see it changing that radically, uh, at least text AI, is you have a language learning model that incorporates a huge amount of data, and you have some algorithms that have been created to. To facilitate a sort of conversational response to a query. So you make a query that is a conversational query and you get a response that is a conversational response. But people are reading a lot into that. It's like that doesn't mean that you're talking to some intelligence in the sense that you're talking to another person. You're talking to a machine that knows how to interpret the voice input and kind of figure out how that comes out as text as words and and then a query you know run queries that are based on that and give you a pretty quick response and it can sound really cool and sophisticated but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're talking to a conscious being you know you're right basically just feeding data in as an uh, an inquiry, uh, an inquiry stream, and getting a response back based on the data set that's available. And one thing that we know about AI, if, I mean, if you've used Chad GTP, you know it'll give you responses that seem correct, and then when you look into them, they're not they're they called that hallucinating right they have hallucinations you know because well, they, they're not
4: answering your question they're not even thinking about it in terms of your question they're just trying to come up with the most probable set of words that respond to the words that you put down you know it's a very absolutely. different process it's not wikipedia it's <laughs> something else and that's i think a good point to end this uh this edition of the kibitz room. Thanks everybody for being here. Thanks for being on Team Human. You too can join our kibitz room conversations by becoming a member of Team Human by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support or go to patreon.com/teamhuman. It would be great to have you on Discord in the kibitz room with everybody else. Thanks everybody and brinna and Lucy and Viv and everyone for participating. I've learned in kibitzed a lot. I know we didn't have an AI here. Maybe someday we'll invite one and see if they have any questions for the humans. But until then, thanks for being on Team Human. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, everybody. And uh, we'll see you next time. And thank you for being on Team Human. That Kibitz Room conversation was recorded on April 28th in the Team Human Apocalypse Bunker, which is accessible through the audio channel on our Team Human Discord. If you want to join that, um, go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to become a supporting member of the team where you'll get access to those conversations and all sorts of other good stuff. Team Human is engineered by Luke Robert Mason and produced by Joshua Chapdelin. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.